I invite you to please turn with me as we begin to 2 Timothy chapter 2, the epistle of the Apostle Paul to 2 Timothy. It's actually to Timothy, it's the second one. It's not like there were two Timothys. Nowhere does the Bible teach that when a man or a woman or even a boy or a girl is saved by His marvelous grace, that they are left unchanged. That is a great heresy in our day, often referred to or commonly referred to as the carnal Christian theory, that a person can be saved by Christ and just stay in sin or stay the way that they were. Following Christ is said to be an option. You can have Him as Savior, and then maybe if you want to, you can later on have Him as Lord. That is simply not taught in the Scripture. One who is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb is changed. Their life is changed. Their outlook is changed. Everything about them is changed. They don't merely become religious. The Bible never teaches that. It doesn't speak ever about a people who just put in their time on Sunday morning and think that that's all they need to do for God. That's ridiculous. That's not Christianity. That's world religion. The Bible just doesn't talk about people who are holy in church, but then when they get to work the next morning, they're back to being sinners until next Sunday. The Bible doesn't speak of people who hear the word maybe on a Sunday morning in church and then have nothing to do with the Bible for the rest of the week. It's just not biblical Christianity. Christians are called to be followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he himself says, take up your cross daily and follow me. What does that mean? It means we are striving to live godly and holy lives. We are striving day by day to be more Christ-like and to point lost men and women to our Savior for the great salvation that we have experienced. And one of the great aspects of living the Christian life and being able to follow Christ and being able to be holy, godly men and women is to know what the Bible teaches. To understand what the Bible says so that we can know how to more be Christ-like. How we can be more godly men and women. So look at this text, if you would, 2 Timothy, and look at verse 15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. You know, the old King James says, study to show yourself approved. Study, be diligent in understanding the Word of God. Now, it would be wrong for me not to pick up the context a little bit here. Paul is speaking to his son in the faith, Timothy. 
And Timothy is indeed a pastor. And so, yes, this verse is primarily directed towards this young man, this pastor. Look what he says in verse 1 of this same chapter. Verse 1 of chapter 2. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to these faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Yes, it is primarily directed to Timothy to teach others who will also be able to then teach others. And part of that is involved in understanding and accurately handling the Word of God. He goes on to chapter 4 and tells him, Preach the Word! This is what pastors are supposed to do. Preach the Scriptures, not preach the football scores. Preach the jokes. Preach the political atmosphere. Preach the Word. This is what is supposed to happen in a church. So I want to just make sure that you understand that verse 15 of chapter 2, when he says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, is primarily directed towards this pastor and involves what a church is to do, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have application for you. It has application to everyone in the church who should then be able to take that word and teach others. So it's to a godly pastor, it's to a right church that preaches the truth, and it's to the people in that church that they are to accurately be able to handle the word of God. That means to know it, to understand it to see what it says, and to have your doctrine and your life set by the course that is given in the Scriptures. Now, why? What's the big deal? Why should we bother doing that? Look at the verse again. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God. This is what pleases God. A pastor that preaches truth, A church that abides by the truth and the people in that church that live by the truth. This is approved by God. The sad reality is that in our day, people don't really care about studying, particularly in church. It's too hard. We just want to be entertained or feel better. No, no, no. That doesn't please God. What pleases God is you knowing, accurately knowing, His Word. And so I say to you, as we continue in our study of the Trinity, that even though it may not be as exciting as some people might want it to be, it would be exciting to you as a child of God who wants to know more about the God that we worship and to better be able to understand how He presents Himself in the Bible. I'm excited by this. I love this. This is the knowledge of our God. 
and I pray that it will bring us closer to Him. So we pick up then, turning again to chapter 28 of the Gospel of Matthew in our study of the Trinity. This comes in the midst of our series called The Ongoing Work of the Resurrected Savior. That is what Jesus taught in those times when He was after following His resurrection from the dead, but prior to His ascension back into glory. He met with His disciples on several occasions recorded in the Scriptures, and we're looking at what He taught during those periods of time. We've seen how He taught the disciples in what we called His appearance to them at the sea, the Sea of Tiberias, when He restored Peter in the church. We saw how He also taught them in the, uh, his appearances as described by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And right here, we're dealing with his appearance on the mount. And we're already up to this area, his instructions to a Trinitarian church, which we find in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I hope that all of you, even when I read that, were reminded of what we looked at last Lord's Day, the individuality. It's not in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we have seen from this text that there is one God, not three gods. Christianity is monotheistic. One God. We do not worship three gods. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. We have one God. And yet this God, even from the Old Testament, has manifested himself as three persons. The very beginning of the Bible, when it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the word Elohim is in the plural ending. One God, and yet we see him in the scriptures as three persons. Second verse of the Bible, and the Holy Spirit brooded over the earth. In the 26th verse of the first chapter of Genesis, let us make man in our image. The Trinity is present from cover to cover in the Bible. Of course, we see it as we would expect, most fully revealed in the New Testament with our Lord Jesus Christ. So we saw that there is one God, but the biblical revelation of three persons is in the Old and the New Testament. And we talked about the unity of the Trinity, that there is one God who manifests Himself in three persons. I wonder if you even realize that the word Trinity is triunity. One God who is unified. Triunity. It's not that the Father is more than the Son, or the Son is more than the Father, or the Holy Spirit is less. It's not that one is not God and the other is. I think I even put it on the cover this week. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But then, last week we went on to see the difference between them as shown in the Scriptures under what we call the individuality of the Trinity. That is, the Father is the Father... The Son is the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. They're not the same. Yes, there's unity, but there is this individuality. They are three distinct 
persons. And we saw texts that show all three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together in one text. They could not be the same. They're different. They're distinct. We saw from the Scriptures that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are each called God. Each one is called God. So there is one God, three distinct persons. Today, I want to pick up our study on the Trinity and look at something a little bit different to the next area. When we speak of the Trinity, we naturally say the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't we naturally just say it that way? When you talk, who's the Trinity? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's just natural that we say it that way. When I ask you this, why? Did you ever wonder why we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Why don't we say Holy Spirit, Son, and Father? Why don't we say Son, Father, and Holy Spirit? Why do we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It's not only that it's natural, but it's biblical. And right here in our text, is one of the primary areas that we, one of the primary texts that we find this way of referring to the Trinity and what we call the order of the Trinity. Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now think about it. Jesus is appearing to his disciples. He has been crucified. He was dead and buried, and now he's raised from the dead. And he is standing in front of his disciples. He has just said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It would almost be very natural if he had said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in my name. And in the name of the Father and the Spirit as well. I mean, he was right there, standing in front of them. How do we speak when we talk today? Usually, we put ourselves last. Like when I speak about my wife, I say, my wife and I. Or I might say, Doug and Cliff and I did this. We put ourselves last. But Jesus doesn't say, the Father and the Spirit and I. The Father and the Spirit and the Son. He says very clearly, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there is a reason that he does so, and that is why we call this the order of the Trinity. He says it in the order that is given in the rest of the Scriptures. I invite you to please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. As we begin to look into this, the biblical prescribed order of the Trinity. John's Gospel and chapter 1. And I want to pick up this morning at our first stop, looking at this text that speaks of Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh, And dwelled among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, you've all heard this term, I'm sure. If you read your Bibles at all, if you've 
heard sermons in various occasions, such as, you know, normally around Christmas time, might speak of the, the Son as being the only begotten Son of God. But I wonder if you understand that there are some people who suggests that since it speaks this way of Jesus, that Jesus is somehow, first of all, that he only began here in his incarnation as he was born in Bethlehem, or that because he is begotten, that somehow makes him less or inferior to the Father. And before we go any further, I just want to dispel that and have you understand what this language actually means. So we're looking here, and it speaks of him as being the only begotten from the Father. Begotten does not mean that Jesus' existence began here. In other words, that he's just a man. That's what some would suggest, that he was not the Son of God and even a man. But even if he was somehow God, inferior to the Father... No, no, this is John's account of what we commonly call the Incarnation. And if we want to understand who this is, we need to go back to verse 1. Because it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is that Word? Who is he speaking of? Verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is the Word, in verse 14, who became flesh. And according to what I'm reading in verse 1, He was with God in the beginning. Which means... He is eternal. He could not have simply begun in a manger. He did not begin at his birth in Bethlehem. As we say, the only begotten son. No, he is eternal God. And the word was with God. And the word was God. So this word who became flesh is indeed God incarnate. He is true God who has come to dwell among men. So we see him here in verses 1 and 2 and 3 and even 4, that he was with God in creation, he is eternal God, and he was part of creation, and even all the life that is came from him. He's the light of men. He's God. So this disproves that notion that he only began at his birth. So that is not what the term begotten means. It doesn't mean that he began at his birth. The word actually means, and it is a compound word, what is being said by the Apostle John here is uh, the word monogenes, and it's a two-part word, mono meaning one, and genomai, which is the second part of the word, to become. So it is one who has become. And what the one means, the one means alone, without companionship, without any comparison. He is the one and only who has become man. That's what it means. The only begotten is the one and only who has become man. 
And this is what Jesus is being described as here in the, Apostle, in the uh, Gospel of John. He's saying that there is no other that is like Him. He is unique. He is alone. He is the only one who is man and God. He is the only one who is the God-man, the Word who has become flesh and dwelled among us. Now we look further even in this chapter and we see in verse 18 that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So He is the only begotten God, clearly suggesting, no, clearly stating that Jesus is God incarnate. He is the only one who has ever been and whoever will be God incarnate, the only begotten of the Father, who is indeed God with man. And we also see in this statement that he came to show us the Father, and he has explained him. You want to see God? You see Jesus. He explains the Father. Look, if you would, at chapter 10, John's Gospel and chapter 10. You remember last Lord's Day where we talked a little bit from 1 John chapter 3 and chapter 1. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 and 2, where it says that um, we are the children of God and the world doesn't know us because they don't know Him. What we're doing here is we're studying God. And a lot of the world isn't going to understand it. A lot of the world isn't going to get it. And I've said to you on previous occasions that a lot of the world is opposed to and hates this doctrine of the Trinity. Muslims hate it. The Jews hate it. They don't want to hear about this Trinity. They don't believe it's possible. They don't get it. They don't understand it. I want to pick up that thought again here. Look at verse 24. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the words that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Isn't that amazing? No matter what the world says, we will follow Jesus. No matter what the world says, we will be followers of Jesus because we've heard his voice. We know him. We know who he is and we know what he is, the very son of God. And so we follow him. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, 
and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. But now look at what he says. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Jesus is one in the same as the Father. And so when we speak of him as being the only begotten, it is not in any way saying that, is he, that he is inferior to God. He and the Father are one. But notice what he says. There is no one greater than the Father. He is greater than all. Just kind of keep that in mind right now and turn over to chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're just showing what the scriptures teach in regards to the Son and His relationship to the Father at this time. John chapter 14. And here I invite you to look down to verse 9. Pick up at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. What did John say in chapter 1 and verse 18? He is the only begotten who explains the Father. How? Because he is equal to the same as the Father. Yet, he's the begotten Son. One more passage, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. This is the Apostle Paul, most likely, commenting on Jesus and his relationship to the Father. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, that is the Son, is the radiance of his glory the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. Jesus Christ is the same as the Father. He is the representation of the Father, the radiance of His glory, the representation of His nature. So when we speak of the Son being the only begotten, the one who has come from heaven and is incarnate, It's not that He is less than the Father. It's not that He is somehow not as good as the Father. He is the same as the Father. But, go back to John chapter 1. What we cannot ignore is that He is the begotten, as it says in verse 14 again, from the Father. Our point here today is that that is never said of God, God the Father. God the Father is never said to have been begotten. 
God the Father is never said to have come as a man. God the Father is never said to have left glory and come to earth to dwell among men, as the Son has. The Son became flesh and dwelled among us. The Father has not. And it does say that the Son is the only begotten from the Father. And this leads us to the next aspect or to the real heart of the matter when we talk about the order of the Trinity. And so I want to ask you, if you would please turn again in this, in this book, in the Gospel of John, to chapter 3. And this most famous passage, probably in all the scripture, John chapter 3. And I want to take this apart just a little bit. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. All right? Who's the Son? Jesus. Jesus is the Son who has come. Well, then who's God? God so loved the world that he gave his Son. This is a reference to God the Father. And everyone knows that, but sometimes I think we fail to realize it. This is God the Father. He loved the world and gave His Son. So, the Son is the begotten of God who was sent by God. The Son was sent by God. God so loved the world that He gave or sent His only begotten Son. God the Father sent His Son. How often do you hear Jesus speak these words? That He was sent by the Father. Or the Father has sent me. You don't have to go very far. Look at chapter 4, right here in the Gospel of John. Chapter 4, and look down to verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me, and to accomplish His work. We're seeing more. We're seeing more. It's getting clearer. God sent the Son, but He didn't just send Him to do nothing. He sent Him to do His work. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's not just that He came. What did He do? He died on the cross. He gave His life, a ransom for many, a sacrifice for sin. That's the work that the Father gave Him to do. And here in this passage, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. You want to know what it means to be a Christian? You want to know what it means to be Christ-like? You will be one whose desire is to do the will of the Father. 
and the work of the Father in the church and in my life, in my job, in my family. That's being Christ-like. His very desire was to do the work and the will of the Father. That's Christ-like for us. But this is what he says. To do the work or the will of Him who sent me. So the Son is sent by the Father to do the work that the Father gave Him to do. Look over the page. Chapter 5. Verse 30. And now look even further. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And who sent him? The Father. The Father sent him. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. So the Father sent the Son to do the work that the Father gave him to do. And the fact that he does the work that the Father gave him to do testifies that he's sent by the Father to do the work. This is what Christ is saying. I am the one who has been sent by my Father to do this, and I don't even do anything on my own initiative I'm doing the work that he gave me to do. I want you to think about that again for a minute and apply that to your own life in Christianity. We do not live by blind faith. That's wrong. What we're doing here, what we're engaging in here, I hope would be the exact opposite of that. It's not blind faith. It's understanding the word of God faith. It's knowing what God's word says. That's the kind of faith we want. But when you do understand the Word of God, and when you do know what it teaches and what it says, then you do it. And the world calls that blind faith. It's not blind faith. It's going by the Bible faith. And Jesus says, I don't even do my own initiative. I do the work of the Father. What we need to say in our lives is, I'm not doing my own initiative. I'm not living my own life the way I think it should be lived. I'm living in accordance to what the Word of God says. I'm following what God's Word says to do. That's the way I want to live my life. So here Jesus is teaching and telling us, indeed, that He has come to do the work of the Father. He was sent to do the work of the Father. Let's look at another. Skip a chapter here. Chapter 7. John chapter 7. Some of the greatest passages in all the New Testament, right in here. Here we have in chapter 7, look down to verse 28. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I do not come of myself, but he who sent me is true 
whom you do not know. And there was a big debate about speaking, is he of the Father, is he not? You know, they're all wondering. You don't know him, but I do. I have not come of myself, but him who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Jesus is clearly teaching the people here that he was sent by the Father. They knew who he was. They could see him. But what they didn't understand was that he was God incarnate. Most of them, many of them, did not get it. They could see him, but he was sent by God to, remember John 1, 18, explain the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. But he was indeed sent by the Father to do the will of the Father. And I'll look at another one right now, chapter 8, if you would. John chapter 8. We pick up with that sort of theme again. This is a great, I can't help it. This is a great chapter. It's a great, great heart of the gospel. Verse 25. He's teaching these Jews, some of the scribes and Pharisees. And so they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? See the hardness of their heart. Their ears are stuffed up. They just won't hear. It's like he keeps saying it and they don't believe him. Haven't I been telling you this from the very beginning? I've been telling you who I am. You just don't want to listen. And again, that's the task that we face in our day. Telling people that Jesus is the Son of God. Telling people that the Bible is the truth. They don't want to listen. They don't want to hear it. They want to live in their own lives and in their own ways. They don't want to be encumbered by this gospel thing or this God of the Bible who says there's a hell and a heaven. They don't want that. So Jesus says to them, What have I been telling you from the very beginning? I have many things to speak to you and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. The Father sent the Son to explain the Father, to explain him. And here he's talking about the things that he says, the things that he teaches. The Father sent me, and I'm teaching you those things that the Father has given me to teach. The very things which I heard from him. Verse 27, they did not realize that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. For I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always 
do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Here's Jesus, the Son of God. You see me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Here's Jesus, the Son of God. He's teaching and telling them that I am sent from the Father to do the things that the Father sent me to do. I have been sent by the Father to teach you the very things that I heard from my Father. The very things that the Father told me to say, I'm telling you. Do you imagine that? Do you realize how precious and how valuable this is, what we have in our hands? The Gospels, where Jesus is speaking the very things that the Father told him to say, and we get to read them, we get to study them, we get to preach them. That's a joy and a delight. These are the very things that the Father sent him to say. However, here's the point. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that the Father was sent. Or that the Father was sent to do the will of anyone. Or that the Father was sent to teach anything from heaven. He was never sent to do the work. He was never sent to do the teaching. The Son is the only begotten who is sent from the Father to do the work of the Father. The Son is the only begotten who is sent from the heavens, sent from God, sent from the Father to teach the things that the Father said. It's never said that the Son sent the Father to teach. That the Son and the Holy Spirit sent the Father to do the work that they had determined to do. Now let's put all this stuff that we've been learning together. The unity of the Trinity. One God. One God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are all God. They are all equal. They are all omnipotent. Omniscient. They are all God. Each one is God. However, the Father sent the Son. And so, in the Scriptures, when it comes to understanding what we call the biblical prescribed order of the Trinity, the Father is, if I can say it reverently, at the top. Now, how can they be equal and yet the Father at the top? You tell me. How can they be one and yet three persons? You tell me. I, I said to you from the very beginning, I cannot make you understand this. Because I cannot understand this. Man cannot understand this. But what I am telling you is what the Bible teaches. And this is what the church has held to for its existence. That there is one God who manifests Himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are unity, tri-unity. They are together, they are one, and yet they are diverse. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. They are all God, and yet they are all distinct. And then when it comes to the order, 
The Father comes first. For the Father has sent the Son to do the work that He ordained Him to do. To do the work that He sent Him to do. And the Son, in obedience, is done the work that the Father sent Him to do. He's taught the words that the Father sent Him to teach. He perfectly accomplished everything that the Father sent Him to do. He even says, I do nothing of my own initiative. Everything I do is from the Father who sent me. And He did. Everything that the Father sent Him to do is what He did. And so this is how we ascertain the order of the Trinity. And people, I have only, and believe me, scratched the surface. This is just a a pinprick in trying to understand even the order of the Trinity here. And I apologize that I can't go more deeply into it. But what I want you to understand is that the Son is nothing less than God because He's begotten. He is unique, the one and only incarnate Son of God. That's what begotten means. He's not less than the Father. However, He did come to do the work the Father sent Him to do. He didn't send the Father, and He didn't tell the Father what to do. The Father sent Him and told Him what to do. And therefore, we say that the Father is the top of the Trinity, the first person of the Trinity. It's not understandable. It's not something that I can tell you plainly and make you understand it. But reverently speaking, the Father is the first person of the Trinity, and it's shown in the Scriptures as He being the one who sent the Son to do the work that He sent Him to do. And before I close today, I want to look at one other aspect of this, and I purposely skipped over it. Turn back to John chapter 6. I mentioned it in passing, but I'd like to see it from our Lord's words Himself. Look back here to chapter 6. One more passage. Down to verse 38. As we consider more clearly, what was that work that the Father sent Him to do? John chapter 6 and verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Do you see how clear that is? I have come down from heaven not even on my own initiative. God so loved the world that He gave His Son. I have come down from heaven, not on my own initiative, but God sent me, and so I came in obedience to the Father. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. It wasn't my own will to come. It was the Father's directive. I didn't come to do my own will. I've come to do what the Father who sent me wanted me to do. What is that will, Jesus? Verse 39 This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, 
I will lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. You remember Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul says that God chose us in Him from before the foundation of the world? Well, what did He do with those He chose from the foundation of the world? He gave them to His Son. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all He has given me, I will lose none. And that everyone who believes in Him will be raised up on the last day. That is the will of the Father. And the work that the Son has accomplished, and if I can say it even this way, will accomplish at the end of this age. Because He gave His life to make sure that you are perfect in righteousness, and therefore able to go to heaven to be with God, because of the righteousness of Christ, which His shed blood gives to you when it is imputed to you that those who believe have the very righteousness of God covered in the blood of Christ and that you are therefore then able to go to be with the God who chose you to be with him from before the foundation of the world and not one will be lost because if you believe that God is able and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who was sent to do the work of the Father, then you must believe that what He did secures heaven for you, and not one of you will be lost. Not one of you who believes, not one of you who will one day believe, will be lost. But He will raise you up on the last day to be with Him forever in glory. Isn't that great? That's the work of the Son. You kids, try to understand. That's why Jesus came. To give His life so that you could go to be with God in heaven. But you must believe. You must have faith. And remember how we began. Not one person who comes to believe in Christ is left unchanged. So your mom will know or your dad will know. They will know if God has changed you because a true Christian is changed and becomes a follower of Christ, the one who saved them. Let's pray.